Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So today's uh, podcast is going to be a little bit different. There is no guest, or in a sense, uh, I'm the guest. Uh, Over the course of doing the show, I I started it about four years ago. And um, I haven't done an episode every week, but most of the weeks from February 2014 till now, um, I've done one of these podcasts and I've been on social media. And over the course of this time, people have asked me a series of questions. And often these questions repeat and they're things that I, I almost get to during the course of interviewing someone. But then um, I feel like I should turn the conversation back to them. And sometimes I, I don't fully get the answer out. I've talked about some of this stuff on other podcasts, but not um, on my own. And so if you tune in to the moment, mostly to hear the guests, and I don't blame you for that, I'd be tuning in mostly to hear the guests. This probably isn't the podcast episode for you. But if you're interested in how I've been able to do the kind of work that I've done mostly alongside Dave, the choices I've made to get me here, the stuff that I'm struggling with, then I'm going to talk about all that. I put out on Twitter and Instagram and other social media that if people had questions, they could ask me in that format, and I would try to answer them here. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go through them, and the ones I find the most interesting or just there, I use the word interesting, which I'm trying never to do. Fascinating, compelling are much better words, much more alive words. That's one of the things as a writer I think about all the time. What words have uh, become so common as to have lost their meaning? And to me, interesting is a word like that. I think it has no real content to it. It has nothing added to it. It's, um, it just kind of sits there. But compelling, fascinating, those words matter. So th- this is a question that somebody asked me on Twitter. And if you didn't, or on Instagram in a message, and if you didn't uh, specifically say that I could use your name, I'm not going to. Uh, but I do appreciate all the questions, and I appreciate everybody listening. And if there's anyone still listening to this particular episode, I especially appreciate you. And let me say right at the top, if you have questions that you would like me to answer in a future episode like this, send them to me at themomentbk at gmail.com or tweet at Brian Koppelman or follow me on Insta and message me there somehow. Also uh, at Brian Koppelman. All right, so let's... Get into it. One thing before we start, which is uh, I want to mention this every episode, and I don't always mention it. The music that opens and closes this podcast, I just love it so much, and uh, it's it's written by Eskimo, who's the artist who also composes all all the music for Billions. And um, Brendan is his name in life, and Brendan is an incredible songwriter and composer, and I, I love that he did the music for this. Okay. So the first question comes in, and it's this, and it's one that I'm, I, I love, and it's something I've thought about, and it's, it's uh, what beliefs about yourself or otherwise have helped or hurt you in life? Is there one you're working on changing at the moment? Uh, and so, yeah, and I think this ties in to something that many people who listen to the show wonder about, and that is I went through many years of my life believing with certainty that I wasn't and couldn't be an artist. 
I believed that artists were separate and distinct from the rest of us. And I'll define artists broadly. I mean, sure, people who paint. But what I'm really talking about is anyone who um, uses their senses to apprehend the world a certain way and then finds a way to present that back out uh, into the world in either uh, in some kind of physical form, in, in music or in uh, writing, in film, sculpture. And I think from when I was young, um, it's possible that I felt... I felt strongly that uh, I, I apprehended things in a certain way. I noticed certain things. I paid attention to certain things, the ways in which people express themselves, uh, little awkward moments between people, uh, the way something looked or someone looked when they were just a little bit askew. But I didn't believe I had any gift for expressing it back or that if I did, it wasn't something legitimate or special or unique. Uh, I noticed classmates of mine when I was very young who would get singled out for their artistic abilities. And they carried themselves as though they were artists. They didn't all wear berets, but it was as if they were wearing berets. They somehow had a language to talk about this stuff that I didn't have and a language to talk about who they were that I didn't have. And this may seem like a small thing, but it turns out to be a big thing. Because if you believe that it's only those who are predestined, who are somehow different at birth, who are somehow recognized, who can produce um, original work of merit, and who can uh, perform in some way as, as artists, it limits you and what you believe about yourself. And so for me, it sent me into years of distrusting the impulse to write, uh, to perform. You know, I would go to a comedy club. I would see the people on stage. I wouldn't think that they worked incredibly hard. I wouldn't think about the hours. And even though I knew many of them, um, even at a young age, I would, what I would think about was, um, oh, that person was funny from birth. They walked on stage and they were miraculously able to control a room. They had perfect timing. They knew exactly how the language of a joke should function. And suddenly, ta-da, they were uh, on the stage at the Comedy Cellar. And all I wanted to do was be on the stage, but I thought it was impossible. I would read a great book and I would think uh, that person who wrote that book uh, somehow understood how to just uh, begin writing as though they had like a fountain pen and they could just write without a smudge on the page or without stopping. And miraculously at the end, uh, the sun also rises appeared. And now maybe, listen, Hemingway was 24 when he wrote The Sun Also Rises. Uh, and, you know, perhaps Hemingway, although, if you know, if we read about Hemingway, we see the struggle that it was for him. But, you know, at a young age, Hemingway was truly a master. But he was the rare exception. But I didn't see it that way. And so it took me until I was 30 years old to believe that I could, to believe strongly enough, to have enough of a reason, to have enough pain in the rest of my life to just say, fuck it, I'm going to try this, even though I'm not one of the special people. I'm not one of the anointed. Uh, and I'll say I had a, a belief running alongside that, that artists were probably a little bit nutty. I worked with artists when I was in the music business. 
And I think I treated them like a little bit like very gifted children and, um, and thought, well, I don't want to be someone like that. I don't want to be, um, uh, uh, unstable. I don't want to be flaky. I don't want to be out on the edge of my life. I don't want to drink till five in the morning. And also thought, well, that means that might disqualify me from the artistic pursuits. But you know, when I, when I was 30 years old, my first child was born, Amy and my first child was born. And I realized I wanted to be the kind of parent who could come home and tell his children to chase their dreams. That I wanted to be the kind of parent who would come home and be present and engaged and active. And I knew that if I stayed in the job I was in, that would never be me. I knew that something that as a that I was a blocked writer, and what that meant was that something inside of me was dying a little bit every day because it wasn't getting out. And that like uh, actual death, when something inside of you dies, there's a toxicity left behind. You become sort of poisonous. And you become poisonous especially to those that you love, to those who are around you, because they're with you in um, your most unguarded moments. And you know if you have to put on some sort of a mask to get through the day when you come home, you let that toxicity out if you're not doing that which you're which you really want to do. Doesn't mean you have to do it all day. That doesn't mean you have to throw away your job to be a healthy and good uh, parent or spouse or partner. But it does mean to me that you have to connect with the part of you that feels most alive and do something every day to feed that part of yourself. And so for me, that was becoming uh, some kind of a writer. And so that's when I found Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within. That's when, which then led me to know that I had to make these changes. That's when Levine gave me, David Levine, who's my creative partner, gave me The Artist's Way. And I started doing morning pages every day. And that's when a new set of beliefs formed. And that new set of beliefs was that if every day I did a little bit of something that made me feel alive in the right way, eventually I would feel alive. And that if I failed at the actual work, if I failed at successfully becoming a screenwriter, that was okay, meaning if I failed commercially, but that as long as I did something every day, artistic, as long as I tried, then I was being an artist. You know, some people don't want to say, hey, I'm a writer until they're a published writer. Me, I felt comfortable saying it as soon as I was doing it every day. And the reason is those two hours in the morning, that I did the work. And I worked two hours every day before I went to uh, work. I didn't work every Saturday. And we didn't work very many Sundays at all. But at least five days a week, I was in a basement and I was writing for two hours. And I felt during those two hours that something in me that had been uh, almost dead had started to awaken and become incredibly alive and incredibly vibrant and vital. And so this new belief I had, uh, I rode this new belief, which was to do the work every day was the thing. And that if I did it every day, I was coming alive and it, and it worked. Then I was fortunate enough that I happened to have inside me some sort of talent for it, a knack for it. I had a great partner who helped me. I had an incredibly supportive partner and wife and Amy who recognized in me before I did that this was possible. The main thing that happened 
was I began to believe that I could do it. I began to believe that artists weren't separate and different and, and special in um, a strange way, but that uh, if you did the work, you were the thing. And as soon as I started believing that, I did it and my whole life changed. And so uh, that's the old belief I had that I had to change in order to be successful. And twinned with that, someone asked me if there was a belief I had now that I feel is holding me back. And I'll be honest, because I'm here on the podcast, I don't really think I believe that I can lose the weight. I think I believe thin people are separate uh, and uh, different and have a special kind of control over themselves. And um, even though I'm someone who loves to play sports, I've been an athlete my whole life, uh, and I can go through periods of dealing with it, somehow I don't really believe that I can lose weight and keep it off, as I know this is uh, the case for many of you listening. And I, I, have to, I know that I have to actually change that. And so I'm, I'm working to change that belief so that in a year when I'm talking to you, uh, I'll be thinner and feel uh, better about myself in that way. So, all right, that was a fun one to kick this off with. All right, the next question is sort of tied in to that one from a different person. It's slightly different though, and it's more pra it's practical. And it's this, uh, hey Brian, at what point did you feel financially, mentally comfortable leaving your reliable paycheck to pursue filmmaking full-time? And then twin with that, how did you find the energy to write while working full-time? Well, I answered the energy question a little, but I'll answer it more specifically, and then I'll tell you the practical side. Well, what happened when I was doing that writing, as I said, it made me feel alive every day. So um, although I didn't actually really have the energy to like write in the morning and then work because my job required me to work all day and into the night, and we had a young baby at home, uh, and I don't think that I was as you know in, in engaged and involved at home in the first couple of months as I could have been. I was home. I wasn't like... Um, you know, I wasn't going out drinking after I did all this stuff. But the feeling I had every day when I did the work, the writing, made it that it was worth it. It was worth being tired. Um, so that's the answer to the energy thing. Look, we tell ourselves a lot of stories. So you could tell yourself the story that you don't have the energy, but just sit down and try. Like if you block the time and get yourself to your notebook and you do the morning pages, and that's the other key to it was the morning pages. Morning pages that Julia Cameron describes in The Artist Way, three longhand pages where you just write and don't censor yourself. That's really all, I, I committed to that and to meeting Dave in the morning to write uh, the script. But the morning pages are the thing I do every single day of my life still. And they're what makes, the morning pages make me know that, um, that I'm gonna accomplish all, all that stuff. And then at what point did I feel financially, mentally comfortable leaving my reliable paycheck? Well, I think one of the really good things that I figured out, luckily, and I think it was from reading a bunch of stuff. And John Acuff talks about this in his book, Quitter, is um, there's no need to quit your job until you have to quit your job for the other thing. So I didn't feel any pressure to quit. Look, also, I had a very good job. You know, I was an executive in the music business. I had done well at it. So it wasn't a terrible job. It just wasn't a job that was making me happy. But the real answer is I didn't want to put the pressure on myself to succeed as an artist in order to support my family. So instead, I decided to cut everything else out. So there wasn't a lot of socializing going on. There wasn't a lot of extra stuff, right? It was home, writing, work. And I was able to balance those things for quite some time. After David and I sold Rounders 
and then set up two pitches, which all paid us enough money to live for a couple of years. And then Rounders was going to go into production. It At that point, we, I, I literally couldn't do my job and fulfill my commitments as a screenwriter. And so it became easy, though still with risk. Like if the screenwriting thing had flamed out, if Rounders didn't get made, which happens all the time, maybe I would have been in a strange spot, you know, like you leap from one building to the other and then move the building and you fall down. But it seemed to us like a decent moment to do it because we had a lot of momentum. That said, we didn't get some fancy offers. I'll say we did certain things. So if you're going to do that, let's say you're, whatever your dream field is and you're starting to have some success in it, because we did, we started to have real success. It's easy to then want a bunch of the trappings of that. But David and I got the cheapest office we could find. Like, we found an office eight by eight or something like that in a suite of offices that were in a really undesirable part of Manhattan. And it was a month to month office we took and it had no furniture in it. Really, we put like, you know, each put like a chair in the office, I think, and um, a desk. And we were bare bones in it, man. We weren't like going out for big lunches. We were really living frugally within... Um, in this nascent business that we had of being an, uh, of of being um, screenwriters, and so I think it was a combination of things. M largely, it was like I just couldn't do the other job because the the time pressure was so great, um, and the focus that I needed in order to be a professional screenwriter. I would say what you should do is um, not quit until you absolutely have to quit. Don't put that kind of pressure on yourself all right here's a fun question and and it's somehow it's it's again related in a certain way uh someone on twitter asks me how long were you a stand-up comic and how long would you have had to keep doing it to make it your career so i did stand up for a year and a half four nights a week and i was 40 years old and had just come back from shooting oceans 13 and i realized this was the other thing, as I said earlier, that I always wanted to do. And even when I became a screenwriter and was someone who was able to make movies, in the back of my mind was still this idea that I was scared to try to be a stand-up. And I had was writing something. I was writing this movie, Solitary Man. And it was the first thing I was trying to write by myself. And I was about halfway through. And I was a little bit stuck. Uh, I'd written, I'd written, let's say, 60 pages, and I didn't really know how to keep it going or where the story should go. And I would look at it, and I would, something wasn't letting me finish. And I kind of, during my morning pages, was writing about how frustrating that was. And I think I started, like, listing things that were frustrating, and somehow coming out of it was that you haven't done stand-up. And I started thinking about why I hadn't. And I realized it was truly only fear that I always wanted to know what it would feel like to stand up there, face an audience, and fail or succeed. And something told me that it was like uh, probably the path I had to take. Again, I didn't quit anything. I didn't change it. All I did was add hours to my day. So I took a comedy class, which I got to say I don't recommend, 
And um, although maybe I don't really recommend it because a lot of the people in a comedy class um, are a little nutty and clueless. But it did. What's valuable about it, if I'm being really honest, is at the end of it, you have to perform, and every day you have to kind of perform for this group of people. And uh, so I did that, and then I started getting up at some clubs in New York. I would go on a Monday night, and early on, someone, like, as I started doing it, I had, like, one one bit that was okay. And it was terrifying. The first time I got on stage was fucking scary as hell, man. And I bombed terribly. I guess the very first time I did all right, the second time, I just got destroyed. I was, like, run over by an El Camino. It was so ugly and horrible. And then the next day I was okay. And um, and it reminds me actually of like the first, which is a question I get asked a lot, which is how do you deal with reviews? And so I'll tell you that the very first review I ever got for my work was uh, for Rounders. And there were two reviews and they came out a week ahead of the movie. And they were in Time and Newsweek at a time when Time and Newsweek were like Facebook and Twitter. They were read by everybody and they were enormously important opinion makers. Both Time and Newsweek came out on the same day, a week before reviews were supposed to hit. Both killed the screenplay of the movie and it was my first movie. And I was destroyed reading these reviews. I still remember the names of the guys who wrote them, Richard Shekel and David Anson. I remember what I felt. Uh, I felt they were incredibly unfair. They they missed sort of what we were trying to do. They misattributed stuff. And I remember almost getting into a fetal position upon reading these reviews because I thought my career was over. I thought my life was over. I thought I was a fool. I thought everybody was right. I thought my initial judgment that uh, artists were different people was right because how was I going to live a life where I had to deal with this kind of thing? And then the next morning, I woke up and I realized they had no power over me. And this isn't, I'm not reframing this story either. I'm not making it, compressing the, the time frame or making it better than it was. I remember distinctly waking up the next day, doing morning pages and knowing, wait, I have the power to write the next thing. I have the power to create pages right now. I have the power to be whoever and whatever I want to be in this moment. And those people are just writing into the wind. And it was an incredible break. There were no reviews ever. A review can annoy me for five minutes, but no review has ever deeply um, shaken me ever since. If I review, if I agree with the reviewer, if I knew ahead of time, then it really doesn't. Then I'm just like, ah, caught out. If I disagree with it, sometimes I'll be like, well, that person's an idiot or they missed it. But it can't stop me. And so stand-up uh, gave me some similar kind of um, strength. Because when you bomb a few times, you realize uh, it, it hurts, it sucks, but it doesn't change you at a molecular level in a bad way. In fact, it, uh, it makes you stronger. And so I, I would get back up again. And I met Dan Soder doing open mics in New York. And um, Dan and I together ended up starting to do like Monday night shows, which were bringer shows. Neither of us had to do bringers somehow. We were able, um, 
to get picked to perform on those shows. We performed on those shows. We went around New York City and performed together. And Dan was doing the second part of the question is how long would I have had to done it to become really great at it or like really be a professional comedian? So I was doing four sets a week. Dan was doing 20 sets a week because it was Dan's whole life. It was his mission. It was his calling. It was the thing that brought him the greatest joy. I just wanted to get seven minutes that were decent. I wanted to get seven minutes that I could do. And I got to the point where I had about five minutes that if I did it three nights in a row, one night it would kill, one night it would go over okay, and one night it would bomb. And it would be the same material, and it all had to do with how I felt that night, my level of confidence, my ability to deliver it. Um, but somewhere in there, I it was in August of the second year I was doing it, I made the breakthrough on Solitary Man. I figured out in one three-week period, I figured out how to write the end of it, showed it to Dave, he gave me notes, I rewrote it again, and then we were setting ourselves to go direct the movie, and then went off to direct it, and that was the end of it. The stand-up had somehow allowed me to not worry about being judged in a certain way, because what was preventing me from finishing the screenplay, I realized, was the fear of judgment. I was naked and alone because David and I had written everything together, all the scripts. I'd written a lot of essays alone and all that stuff, but I hadn't written a movie alone. And I, I think part of me was scared that if I finished, I would be judged and I might be judged harshly and uh, I might be exposed because we all worry about being exposed. All of us who want to be do any of this stuff uh, are fighting that feeling of being exposed to ourselves or to someone else. Doing stand-up comedy, you're exposed every night, no matter who you are. And it gets you, if you keep doing it, it gets you to be comfortable with that idea and in fact then gets you to not worry about it at all. And I, I really believe that doing stand-up was the bridge to get me to be able to write uh, on my own and led to one of the most fulfilling creative experiences of my life getting to write and then direct with David Solitary Man with Michael Douglas starring in it and this cast of, you know, Jesse Eisenberg and Mary Louise Parker and Jenna Fisher and David Costable and Ben Shankman and Susan Sarandon. It was once in a lifetime kind of a thing. And, you know, it's probably the best movie that David and I have ever been involved with. Uh, maybe Rounders, Ocean's 13. And we love The Girlfriend Experience too. I mean, love a lot of the films we've been able to be a part of making. I even love Knockaround Guys. In fact, the only one I really don't like is Runner Runner. But um, I even have a soft spot for Walking Tall because we got to work with The Rock in some way. But I would say that all that stuff, in a way, goes back to being willing to take the chance of getting on a stage with a microphone uh, in front of a brick wall. And so I'm, I'm really glad that I did it. I no longer, I used to, when I would go to a comedy club before I did stand-up, it would be this incredibly painful experience. I'd love it, but it was incredibly painful because I knew holy fuck, I just want to be up there. I just want to know. I just want to see. And I would feel like walking failure every time I was sitting in, a, in the audience. And now, if a friend's performing or if someone else, I love going to a comedy club. I never have the urge to get up. I never feel bad about it. I feel like I'm in the fraternity somehow. I've, I don't like fraternities, by the way. But I feel like I'm in the fraternity and um, I gave that gift to myself. And for you, it may not be stand-up. But whatever the thing is, that's the quiet little fear, but that calls to you all the time. I think there's a real utility in looking it straight in the face and taking the shot at it. Okay, here's one. And this was asked on Twitter publicly, so I'll say it was Crystal 
Bergfeld who asked it. Um, and the question is, what's your biggest professional failure, and what did you learn to it? How did it help you get where you are now? And and then a couple other people wrote to ask me uh, about Runner Runner and why I don't like it or what the thing is. And so I'll talk about it a little bit because to me, that's probably the thing that stares me in the face the most. Oh, before when I was listing movies I love, uh, there's this documentary Dave and I made, This Is What They Want, about uh, Jimmy Connors, and that's also one of my favorite things that we ever did. But the thing that was so um, stark about Runner, so I've had other movies that didn't do well. You know, Knock Around Guys, I have an incredible soft spot for our Knock Around Guys. We got to work with Barry Pepper and Vin Diesel and Seth Green, Andy DeBoli, and we got to work with John Malkovich for a second time. And it's just been announced that John is in the third season of round, of the third season of Billions. And I'm thrilled about it. And he's amazing in the show when he shows up. You'll be really happy if you watch. But the Runner Runner experience was instructive to me, to us. Because it, as someone wrote uh, uh, on Twitter that they'd heard the script was good or they'd read the script. And so how did this happen? And Dave and I wrote the movie and we're also listed as producers on the movie. And I'll say that uh, one of the difficult things about being a screenwriter, and when I say difficult, it's relative, right? It's a uh, still an incredible job. Even in its worst days, it's an incredible job, and I was highly compensated as a screenwriter. So I'm not, and even on Runner Runner, you know, um, in a lot of ways, it's great, right? I, we did, we were highly compensated for it, and so I don't want to be like, a, "Woe is me" on a thing like that. But when you don't align yourself with people who want to make the same kind of work that you are making. It's frustrating. And what happened on Runner Runner is that the director's vision for the movie was very different from our vision for the movie. And when that happens, someone's vision has to win. And I think in this case, the director's won, but it was a muddled thing because he had to grapple with us, probably because we were like um, further along in, in many ways in the business than he was. But that's me trying to be super fair to the director. Uh, the truth is, he, in our opinion, he didn't, uh, because you don't want to make the same movie, it, it starts from little tiny things. For instance, the movie was supposed to be about the online casino business in Costa Rica. When we researched the online casino business in Costa Rica, we realized it was like uh, a lot of kids would go to Costa Rica who love to play online. They would go get a job working they were like programmers or people who were good at selling they would wear like ripped t-shirt or sweatshirt in air-conditioned rooms bad jeans they would sit in their chairs all day and do this work and fuck around with each other and um, enjoy the grift of that business and in our first meetings the director was like yeah but we got to dress justin like a badass and dave and i were like yeah yeah but the guys who do this they don't dress like badasses. They dress in shitty t-shirts or sweatshirts because it's really uh, cold in these air-conditioned rooms because of the servers. And a little choice like that, if suddenly you have your guy who's supposed to be waking up in Costa Rica after a night of doing whatever the fuck he was doing and stumble into his job in his crappy clothes and sit there at his uh, terminal and talk about the ways in which they were going to like scam new customers. But suddenly he's in Armani head to toe and a cool fedora. 
you're in suddenly you enter a world that doesn't feel real. It feels fake. And it feels like you have no authority over the material. And so for us, the story was one we cared so much about. The world of poker mattered so much to me because, look, I was a degenerate card player and uh, wrote Rounders with David out of a love and fascination with that game. And so to watch this script morph through notes, we did the work. I can't blame anyone else. We wrote the changes, but these changes were, um, many were mandated and we went along with it. And so each step of the way, there were these little tiny shifts and changes and we didn't, weren't able to safeguard it. And so it just got away from us. And I was down in Puerto Rico shooting the movie and every day, I knew it was going to be bad. And that's the other thing. I knew it was a bad movie. I never, if you go back on my Twitter feed, you'll find a couple tweets, I think, where I like asked people to go see it. But you won't find even one tweet where I, I said it was a very good movie. And it's the only thing of mine. I never, was even when I would be interviewed about it, I would try, I didn't do poker press interviews. I turned them down. I never said why. And the reason was I couldn't talk to the poker press about the movie and pretend that I thought that it was a good movie about the world of online poker because I didn't. And I felt that I had a relationship with the poker world because of Rounders and our TV show Tilt. And whether you like Tilt or not, I was proud of Tilt and I felt like it told a story that was true and real and going on. And so I had no problem talking to the poker press about that. But uh, Runner Runner just felt like a fugazi to me from the beginning. And so for that reason, um, I probably consider it my biggest professional failure. Okay, I'm going to answer this one in honor of my dear friend, Gary Harris, who died last week. And um, he was a music business legend. And uh, I loved him like a brother. And uh, Gary and I went to dozens of Knicks games together and talked about the Knicks all the time. They really mattered to us. And so this question that just came in, someone's asking me for my all-time all Knicks top five lineup. This is really difficult for me, but I'm not going to take up the whole podcast with it. And I'm not going to stick to two guards, two forwards, and a center necessarily. Earl the Pearl Monroe. Clyde. Mark Jackson's coming off the bench. I'm giving you six people. Bernard King. My favorite, the order of my favorite Knicks goes Earl of the Pearl, Bernard, Mark Jackson. But I gotta, I gotta give Clyde, I gotta let Clyde be in the, the starting lineup. Willis, Patrick. Moving on. All right, I have one question for all of the I'm gonna listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people. Are you struggling to get some shut eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally, and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial 
to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I, I have limited time. I'm a writer, primarily, a uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. Okay, a question comes in from uh, the fan fund Damian Lewis Twitter feed. And these, these folks are great. They are actually professors, university professors who love Damien and love the show. And um, they're worth following if you're interested in billions. And this question is, uh, I know Mad Men and The Sopranos are two of your favorite shows. Do they impact your work on billions? And if yes, how? Other people ask me what my favorite books are. And I'll say this. There's not a direct correlation between the work that you love and the work that you do. But I think it is crucial to take in great works for me, for the way I do this stuff. I want to look it all in the eye. You know, when I had Bill Hader on the pod, we talked about how Kurosawa said the artist never looks away. And I, I said, sadly, I do look away from certain horrible things. But I love great television and movies and music and books. And I feel like that's half of the thing is to find a way. So you do the morning pages. I meditate also every morning. But exposing myself to great work stirs me up, disturbs me in some way. I find Mad Men and The Sopranos to be incredibly disturbing. Harold Bloom talks about art that is strange. And what he means is art that's not like other art, that's not familiar, that doesn't feel comfortable, that stirs something in you. And if you expose yourself to that kind of work, if I expose myself to that kind of work, it has a great effect, I think, ultimately on the work that I might produce because it expands me somehow. And so it's not a one-to-one thing. Um, I watch Mad Men or The Sopranos and something else happens. And by the way, if I were listing my favorite five TV shows, it would be Mad Men, Sopranos, NYPD Blue, West Wing, Larry Sanders Show. And I do think you can see echoes of all that stuff in the work that we do. All right, I got a couple of questions about when to quit a project or what happens if I feel like quitting. One, I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again. Seth Godin's book, The Dip, is the best thing I've ever read about quitting, when to quit, why to quit. Acuff's Quitter is a good book too. It's specific about work in a way. Seth's is really about what it means to get to a place where you have to decide if you want to press on or reverse course. And he does an incredible job in a very short, punchy, engaging book in drawing this out. So the, the question here is from Danny W., which is, uh, I find myself scrapping projects that are 40, 50 pages deep because I feel like it's garbage and I'm not smart enough to make it better. Yeah, man, you need to go read the dip because, uh, yes, yeah, some probably should be scrapped. But if that's a pattern you're repeating, it's not about the work. It's about you. And it's about uh, somehow getting to the point of having to commit in a deeper way, of having to really put yourself on the line and, and then uh, uh, giving in to the fear. Uh, look, I feel like projects are bad all the time. 
in the middle of writing a script, I often feel like it's worthless and useless. I often, and this isn't, I'm not, this isn't a platitude. This is how I feel. I feel like no one's going to care about the world that I'm creating, about the story, about the characters. And I inevitably have a day that I want to hang it up. Weeks I could have that I want to hang it up. That I'm like, no one's going to give a shit about this. But when you power through to the end and then read the thing, you suddenly have ways you can fix it, make it better. And then a week later, you're like, oh, this isn't bad. There's things here that work. And so I've trained myself. Dave was amazing at teaching me in the beginning, but I've trained myself to press on. And if you press on, you will often find that uh, the solutions are out there. So um, Brian Baraby, who plays Randy Kornbluth on Billions, like if you check episode 211, he's one of the two reporters and he's just great and um, a terrific actor and a great guy. And he asks me um, if I can give an example of the kind of artistic calculating that I warn against as opposed to following passion. And this comes from um, something I said a long time ago when I was doing the Vine series on uh, screenwriting and I said, calculate less. And what I mean by that is that I think it's pointless to try to game the market, to look at what was popular and try to recreate it for a few different reasons. Um, one is I'm not interested in that kind of work, right? The work I'm interested in is personal work, is work that comes from an artist and that you feel has a spark of life to it. So there might be people smarter than I am who are capable of looking at the hits of this summer and doing the math to figure out what the hit two summers from now will be. But since that's probably 0.0001% of the people, for most of us, if you want to do this kind of art, you should listen to the quiet voice, figure out what it's saying, and then go try to chase it down as best you can. And so the kind of calculating I'm talking about is really any calculating. That doesn't mean you go in clueless. That doesn't mean... Um, you know, you you, you uh, want to adapt a novel that somebody else owns. You don't want to be stupid. But um, if you have a story that you're dying to tell, try to tell it. And don't think about who is maybe going to like it or not. Tell it for the audience that's in your mind. Tell it the best way that you can with as much passion and fire as you have. And I'm telling you, there's going to be someone there on the other end to receive it. All right. This was, um, this was fun for me. If you like enjoyed this, I'm definitely going back to interviewing other people next week. But if you got something out of this, and if you'd like me to do it again, please let me know. You can find me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. You can find me online, Twitter, at Brian Koppelman, under the same name on Instagram. I would love if you reviewed the podcast positively on Apple Podcasts. And if you would tell a friend about the podcast too, that would uh, really be great. And if you didn't like this, feel free to let me know that you didn't like it. Don't put that up on Apple Podcasts, maybe. And uh, thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. 